three, two, one, and we are up. So tonight I just want to talk about the July crisis of 1914 and kind of get a different spin on it uh, versus what the mainstream historians and most of the popular views are regarding this. Uh, a few years ago when I was in school, I actually did a research paper on this and I was thinking about it. It's kind of a first episode. I thought it would be good to kind of share you know, a different viewpoint about uh, why it happened. I always hear the question regarding uh, Germany started two world wars. Yeah, well, they can take blame for one of them, but looking at the first world war, I don't think it's that simple. I think that there was a lot of other factors going on behind the scenes that, that I'm going to touch base on tonight that will show a different side. And that's what the show is about. I want to be going against the grain of mainstream history and give different perceptions about how things truly happen. So I want to get right into it. So July crisis, 1914. Now the popular view is that Germany was to blame for World War I by issuing a blank check to Austria. Now really all powers were at fault. France gave Russia its own blank check, and Russia had been mobilizing for days before Austria had declared war on Serbia. But at this point, I want to go back, go back to the beginning of why this all happened. What was the, what blew the lid off? So we go back to June 28th, 1914. It was a warm and sunny day. The people of Sarajevo had come out to see the heir of the Austro-Hungarian throne, Archduke Franz Ferdinand. The Archduke was in Sarajevo on a state visit to inspect army maneuvers in Bosnia, and as legend has it, to get his wife Sophie, who did not enjoy ceremonies at being at the Habsburg court, so it's kind of a way for her to get out of Vienna. Now the couple arrived in Sarajevo by train at about 9.20 in the morning. They were accompanied by the governor of Bosnia. And they did a brief uh, review of all the troops and headed to the town hall where the people would meet the mayor. Now, along this route, there were assassins already set up, a group called the Black Hand. And their job was to assassinate the Archduke. So on this route that they were taking... Uh, one of these members, uh, by the name of Chabinovich, so there has to be a lot of Serb, uh, Slavic names in this, uh, stepped forward and threw a bomb at the motorcade as they drove by. Now, the bomb bounced off the Archduke's vehicle and exploded beneath one of the following cars. Now, wounded several of the individuals on hand. Now, even after this brush of death, the Archduke ordered the procession to go ahead and continue to the town hall. And here's, here's where things could out of control. At this point, everything can be stopped. He meets with Mayor Fium Efiden, and he had not known what had happened. So he came out to greet the royal couple, and as he was getting to reading the prepared text that he had when Ferdinand showed up, Ferdinand cut him off and said, that's rich. We come to visit this city, and we are greeted with bombs. And instead of stopping, instead of heightened security like we would see today, they continue. 
let me just stop there. So you're the heir of the one of the largest empires in Europe, and you're going to continue, even though you just had somebody try to assassinate you. I don't know what was going through this man's mind, but that that is just insane to think that that would happen that way. So they didn't even provide any more security and end that program. His military advisors even told him to call off the trip to the museum. So instead, you know, go right to the train and get out of town. He says no. So they choose a route that would allow the motorcade to drive at high speeds as not to allow another attempt on their lives. The only problem was that nobody told the driver of the Archduke what the new route would be. As the motorcade proceeded, the first two cars turned right onto Franz Joseph Street. The third car, carrying the royal couple, turned as well. Now, his head of security was a man named Pato Rorek, and he had realized that the driver was supposed to drive straight, and he ordered the driver to turn around. Now, back then, cars weren't as sophisticated as they are today. Putting it in reverse probably killed the thing three times. Now, while the driver tried to put the vehicle in reverse, a young Serbian national by the name of Gavriel Princip, who by the end of the First World War would be simply forgotten and actually would die in prison, who was part of this terror organization, as I said, the Black Hand, that they were based in Serbia. He came forward from a crowd of people. Why? The story to him is actually pretty funny that he was actually eating a sandwich on the corner when this was all happening, by the way, to give you a scene. He fired two shots from his Browning pistol. One struck Franford Zaz's neck, the other Sophia's abdomen. As they were rushed towards the hospital, Ferdinand repeated over and over, it's nothing. Before they both arrived at the hospital, they were both dead. So think about this for a moment here. Picture yourself at the end of June 1914. Say you're on holiday with your family. You stop off, you want to maybe get a sandwich, you stop at a cafe for a coffee, you sit down. The newspaper boy's ringing a bell. Ding, 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 ding. Extra, extra. Read all about it. Archduke Franz Ferdinand assassinating Sarajevo. I don't think that anybody in Europe at that particular moment who would have read any of those headlines would have thought that within a month that Europe would be just drawn into the worst conflict in human history up to that point. I don't think anybody back then even contemplated it. And as we move from the assassination of the Archduke and we get into what is the July crisis, we get to see how all the diplomatic pieces are moving and how things go from the end of June where nobody's thinking of war, to the end of July, where everybody's ready for war. Now, news quickly spread to Vienna shortly after 2 p.m. After being informed of the murders, Emperor Franz Joseph was speechless for a moment and simply replied, it is God's will. The Emperor and the Archduke had had a cold relationship ever since the Archduke married Sophie. The Chief of Staff, Conrad van Holzendorf, having just left the company of the Archduke the night before, told of the news about changing trains in Zagreb. 
and concluded that this was not the work of single fanatics, but must have been the work of a well-organized conspiracy. Conrad, who had been the chief of staff since 1908, had been asking for war with Serbia no more than 25 times, and that was in 1913 alone. So this is the perfect excuse to begin a war. Feeling that this was an act of war, he wired Emperor Franz Joseph at his palace, asking if he should return to the capital. The emperor simply replied, yes. The mood at the Bald Blatz, which was the Austro-Hungarian seat of government, was serious. Count Leopold von Berchtold, foreign minister, found all the officials wanting to put pressure on him to stand up and clash with Serbia. This war party did not need to apply much pressure on Berchtold, who had more than already made the stand against Serbia. Now, by Monday morning, following the assassination, the Hungarian minister-president, Count Stefan Tiza, came to the Bobles, and he was astounded to find the cabinet up in arms, especially Berthold, who was normally calm. Tiza wanted an investigation into the assassination before war should be declared. We have no sufficient grounds, Tiza told Berthold, for holding Serbia responsible, provoking war with her. Conrad wanted war. Berthold was willing to go to war, but was willing to listen to Tiza. This was simply just to create a common ground. It was suggested a note be delivered to Belgrade asking Serbia to conform to certain measures, or, or else war would be declared. Conrad was deeply opposed to these measures and was demanding to mobilize his army against Serbia by July 1st. Now look, Conrad had been in chief of staff, like I said earlier. This guy had been provoking war against Serbia. He'd been asking for countless times. So they're looking for any excuse. <clears throat> you see that Austria is trying to find out whether or not this is a simple conspiracy theory or this is just some fanatic. Kind of interesting that they're already gravitating towards the larger conspiracy. Not just a simple individual who wanted to assassinate the Archduke. Again, Austria is looking for its... It's in. They want war. And the reason for that is that Serbia had been provoking the Balkans, wanted to create its own, um, which would later become Yugoslavia. They wanted to have this Slav superstate, South Slav state. And with the Austro-Hungarian Empire hanging down in Bosnia, it kind of put a damper on what, what they wanted. So you get a power struggle going on in the Balkans, which anybody who studies 20th century history knows that that would go up all the way till the 1990s. The only problem for Austria was Serbia had a powerful Slavic ally in Russia that would prove to be troublesome for Austria. If they chose to invade its southern neighbor, Austria needed to reach out to its own ally, Germany. They needed assurance that Germany would back them in the event Russia came in against them. In early July, Berthold would send his secretary and special envoy, Count Alexander Hoyos to Berlin to assess if these measures could be supported. So we're about to get into this point over the blank check. And the blank check is that, you know, historians have come back and said that the blank check gave the reason for Austria to go to war with Serbia because Germany was going to back Austria no matter what. If Russia came in and were about to explain why that's not 
actually the most truthful logic behind it, which is again why I said Germany's not to blame for all this. In Germany, the Kaiser received the news of Hoyo's mission and listened to the Austrian overtures in regard to Serbia. He was against war, but being as his friend had just been murdered, he had no love for Serbs or Serbia. The Kaiser felt that Russia would stay out of a localized conflict between Austria and Serbia and agreed to the proposals submitted by Hoyo and Berchold. On July 5th, after meeting with his chancellor, Theopold von Bethmann Holdwig, the this is the Kaiser's uh, minister. He agreed to back their allies and issued the blank check of support. The Austrians would send a letter to Serbia outlining certain conditions as a way to let diplomacy work before war, uh, war can break out. So this is the blank check. The blank check is essentially Germany just supporting Austria in its cause against Serbia. But there's no outline of what's going to happen. None of these people at this point even are rationally thinking that a huge conflict is going to blow out of proportion. At least maybe just a localized conflict in the Balkans between Austria and Serbia. And there had already been wars in the Balkans the years leading up to the First World War in 12 and 13. So, all these you know, characters involved basically assess that this is just a normal normal turn of events down there. By agreeing to back Austria, Germany was standing by its alliance terms of 1882. Now, these are these alliance channels that we've all heard about and how this all comes into play as we move forward throughout the month of July. The design of the alliance, which included Italy at the time, was to support and cooperate militarily if one country was attacked by one of the other great powers of Europe. A conflict involving one member could bring in the other two. If a smaller nation was threatening one of these nations, the Triple Entente would simply ignore the situation or face Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy at once. Uh, the Triple Entente was essentially a alliance between France and Russia first and then Great Britain joined later. And this Triple Entente alliance actually uh, was designed in part to create better cooperation between the powers and their overseas empires. So everyone's known the British Empire around the world. Sun so never sets on the British Empire. France had a uh, being a republic at this point and they also did have overseas possessions and Russia being Russia's huge. So, start with Russia. Now, Russia had actually just recently been defeated in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904. And that was a huge defeat. That's like an underdog, underdog story. Nobody in the world thought that the Japanese were going to defeat the Russians, but they did. And they were looking for allies in the face of weakness and revolution at home. So, in 1905, when this war had concluded, there was revolutions against Tsar Nicholas. So, not so much the revolutions that we see in 1917 and 18, which culminated in the end of the Tsarist regime in Russia. It actually went back about a decade before. There was a lot of problems. And that war did not help. So, here they are trying to find friends because now they're just pummeled on the world stage. 
France, having been defeated in the Franco-Prussian War of 1871, had been isolated in Europe, which was the grand design of Bismarck with the creation of Germany in 1871. And they also were fearing German military buildup in the years preceding that war. They looked to Russia as a counterbalance to the Triple Alliance. Great Britain joined the alliance last and did so more out of fear of an overseas German empire than it did a French or Russian empire. With Germany uniting in 1871, they rapidly became the powerhouse in Europe. And this is where Britain feared them in a rivalry. Germany with a Kaiser who was also related to um, British monarchs, Queen Victoria, this is his grandson. He kind of wanted to emulate Germany as a land-based Britain. So there's a huge rivalry, shipbuilding, he was big in the Navy, and this is where you know, there's this rivalry between Great Britain and Germany that comes together right around the turn of the you know turn of century, right around 1900. The growing threat coming from Germany was a real concern for the British. They now looked for new allies within Europe rather than being a neutral power, as it had been during the end of the 19th century. This alliance did not form with the idea of going to war if one member did so, but rather to support one another if war came to be. Following the meeting in Berlin and getting assurance from the Kaiser for support, Berthold met with his cabinet and outlined certain measures to Serbia. These conditions would be delivered to Serbia in the following days, but would later be delayed to the offset the French president meeting with the Tsar in St. Petersburg. Tiza had his concerns and expressed them to Berthold. Now, he concluded that any military intervention into Serbia would bring Russia into a larger conflict. Tiza wanted assurance that if military action was to be taken, no territory of Serbia would be annexed into the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was simply a lie by Berthold when he told Tiza that nothing could be taken from Serbia. He had his own plans in which Austro-Hungary and Bulgaria would divide Serbia into two. On July 20th, Franz Joseph was given a copy of the ultimatum for Serbia and signed his approval, allowing for delivery to Serbia. Just before 6 p.m. on Thursday, July 23rd, Baron Giesel von Gieselingen, sorry if I butchered it, arrived at the Serbian Foreign Ministry to deliver the ultimatum. The ultimatum stated as follows. Now, I'm not going to read all of it as I'm going through this. There was about 10 points, I believe, here. Yes, there was 10 points. <clears throat> Essentially, Serbia did not agree to all of them. I mean, some of these that Austria was looking to go ahead and do, they wanted a cooperation with Serbia and the origins of the imperial and royal government in the suppression of movement directed against the integrity of monarchy. Okay, I, you know, they want to work together. But then there's some of them that... They wanted to get on Serbia's territory, run the investigation without any oversight. You know, a lot of stuff no nation in the world would have been able to agree to at that time. So, <clears throat> the design of this ultimatum was essentially that Serbia rejected it. Austria finds a way to get into a war. And we get to this point where Gissel, he gets his own marching orders, per se, 
about how he's supposed to handle this when this I mean, time frame is over. His only orders from Vienna were to tell the Serbs that they had 48 hours to issue a satisfactory reply or he and his entire staff would leave Belgrade. The Serbs knew full well this meant war. They turned to Russia for support at that critical moment. Of course they would. They know war's coming. They know the language of the ultimatum. They know they're being set up. So of course they're going to go to their ally and try to offset anything that's about to happen. And this is where things get a little interesting. News of the ultimatum reached St. Petersburg by Thursday evening. Foreign Minister Sergei Zazanov knew the implication of such a letter. European war, he said to his chief of staff. On Friday morning, Zazanov met with the Austrian foreign minister, Count Friedrich Zapari, to discuss the ultimatum and to state Russia's objection to the conditions as harsh as these. Zapari told Zazanov that Austria-Hungary, in making such demands to suppress terrorists inside Serbia, was standing, quote, as one with all civilized nations, unquote. Zazanov insisted that Austria was going to set Europe ablaze and warned the Austrian to consider the impression it would make in Paris, London, perhaps elsewhere, where it would be considered as unjustified aggression. This lets Zaspari, knowing that Russia was not going to sit idly by during the crisis as he first expected. Now we get the British point of view. Now, Britain had already mentioned, as I said earlier, that they're pretty much neutral. Anything that's happening on a continent doesn't involve them. They get an overseas empire to worry about. But they're going to go back on something that they had done even prior. Balance of power in Europe must be balanced. This is why they come with this, the, the issue with Germany. In London, Sir Edward Grey, upon hearing the news of the ultimatum, met with the German foreign minister, Prince Karl von Lichnowsky, Lichnowsky, with whom Grey was actually good friends with. Grey proposed a mediation in which his government would influence Russia, who would influence Serbia, and Germany would influence Austria. Hoping to avoid a major European war, Gray was gambling that a conference of mediation would help bring the participants back from the brink. Lichnowsky delivered a letter to the Kaiser informing him of Britain's proposal. The Kaiser, along with Bethmann, responded they knew nothing of the ultimatum from Austria and that the problem was an internal issue for Austria to handle. That's a lie. They actually did know about the ultimatum. They had got word about it. Bethman knew the details of the ultimatum as Austria had sent them a copy after they delivered to Serbia. But they didn't want this conference to happen as proposed by Gray for fear that this gathering would condemn Austria and make them look weak if they backed down from their own ultimatum. So Austria's kind of being put in a spot here where they essentially have to flex their muscles and stay the course. Or else they're going to look weak. And they've already got their own issues going on, which you know I might dissect into another show sometime in the future about the participants of the Great War and their backgrounds leading up to it and why all this makes a lot of sense. Saturday, July 25th, was proved pinnacle for both Austria and Serbia. Now, this is the date of the ultimatum. And at this point, Austria had not heard anything from the Serbs. Now, just around 6 p.m., the Prime Minister of Serbia, a Nikola Pasic, he had entered the Austrian embassy. 
to deliver the response to the letter. He informed Gizel that they would accept part of the demands and placed the hope that the Austrian government would find these measures sat satisfactory. Gizel, who had his own instruction from Vienna, was to hand Pasek his own note stating, have not received a proper reply, would be leaving the capital that evening with the entire litigation. When Gizel reached the border town of Semlin, he wired news of the rejection to Birchtold and to Tiza, telling them that the Serbs had been mobilizing since 3 p.m. And by 9 p.m. that night, Franz Joseph signed off for mobilization to begin on Tuesday, the 28th of July. So, Serbia didn't have a choice. There was 10 outlined points in the ultimatum. The only way that all of this now doesn't happen is if they agree to all 10 of them. And as I said earlier, there's not a single country in the world who would have actually accepted those demands anywhere. They've been stupid. Now, the news of the ultimatum had reached the Kaiser on Tuesday the 28th. Now, this is, this is something that most history gets wrong, that you don't hear about, and I kind of question this myself of why this is never really talked about. I was under the impression that Kaiser was uh, viewing these events like a warmonger. And here's actually the reaction to this when he got the reply. The Serbian reply floored William Kaiserwella when he read it. Quote, a brilliant achievement in a time limit of only 48 hours, unquote, he declared. With Prime Minister Pasek's reply, all reason for war is gone, and Gizel ought to have quietly stayed on in Belgrade, quote, unquote. So this is, this is the Kaiser's very first inclinations after hearing that this ultimatum had been accepted by the Serbs. He's thinking that war is going to be averted. There's some maybe some localized situation going to work out there. And they're off. They're not looking for war. Now he said, he, should, he wrote, I should have never ordered the mobilization. Things in Europe were looking good following the ultimatum on the 23rd. Serbia had agreed to most of the terms outlined. Even Austria's main ally, Germany, was delighted with the news. The Austrians, on the other hand, had other plans. <clears throat> Remember, they can't back down from this. They back down from this. They're going to have larger problems. So they're going to go forward. Now, Austria had failed to inform Germany of its intentions to still pursue the war. Having already mobilized its forces, Austria declared war on Serbia at 11.10 a.m. Believing they had the backing still from Germany, they opted to remain the course and invade Serbia and annex it into the dual monarchy. However, in St. Petersburg, Zazanov met with the ambassador of Austria over the declaration of war, telling him that Russia would not stand by and let Austria get swallowed up. Informing the Tsar of the latest news, it was brought to his attention that the Russian army should fully mobilize not just against Austria-Hungary, but also Germany itself. Days earlier, before war had even been declared, the Russian military was placed under a preparatory to war in case of war. So this is kind of a preparation to mobilization, then mobilization. 
um, <clears throat> preparation in case of war between Austria and Serbia. Knowing a full mobilization would lead to war, the Tsar was hesitant to sign papers issuing such an order. He hoped, as many others, that diplomacy could still work out. And over the next couple of days, the Tsar Nicholas, who was a cousin to the Kaiser, would actually exchange these telegrams that would later be known as the famous uh, Dear Willie, Dear Nikki telegrams. Now, <clears throat> to kind of break down into that area that I just discussed there, Austria went off and did its own thing without truly consulting with Germany. Russia was kind of putting pressure on Austria not to declare war. We're going to have to start going and mobilizing ourselves. The internals within Russia were also saying, look, we have to mobilize against both of them. All these things are working in a timetable. So to be behind during mobilization at this point in time is detriment to any war plans that you have. Now, Russia was actually in the middle of a rearmament program that was actually helped financed by France at this point to modernize its rail lines and a bunch of other stuff. They were still three years away from even having that effectively work for them. So they kind of had to get the mobilization going. That's why the Tsar was on the fence about signing off on these papers because he knew that if he did this, this would pull Germany into countermeasure what they were doing. And that's exactly what would happen next. <clears throat> on the 29th, the Tsar sent a letter to the Kaiser trying to explain the current conditions, stating, quote, I appeal to you to help me. An ignorable war has been declared on a weak country, unquote. The Kaiser explained to his cousin that he understood the Russian position, but as both being sovereigns, they must understand, quote, the unscrupulous agitation that has been going on in Serbia for years has resulted in the outrageous crime to which Archduke Francis Ferdinand fell victim, unquote. In each of these telegrams, the Kaiser sent, he tried to make a case for the Austrian reaction that he was moving to mediate with Austria and telling the Tsar the Russians should not mobilize against Austria. So you can see, Austria, or the Kaiser is trying to work out a situation here. Serbia had been an agitator in the Balkans. They, in this black hand, had actually assassinated the Archduke, which, imagine that, you know, a, a, a president of a standing country being assassinated while this group, this terror group was, you know, hiding within another sovereign country. I mean, most of the, you know, leaders of the world would condemn such action in today's, you know, atmosphere. So the Kaiser's trying to make an argument to his cousin to say, you know, look, this happened to a sovereign just as you or me could have easily been assassinated by a group like this. He's trying to gather in his cousin in Russia to understand a common cause here. Politics plays a bigger thing than family, apparently, at this point, because we'll see how this plays out. So in each one of these, these telegraphs are going back and forth. Uh, they were looking to mediate, and they were having cleared that the Russians were making no means of stopping their mobilization. The Kaiser issued this note to the Tsar. Quote, the peace of Europe may still be maintained by you if Russia will agree to stop the military measures in which must threaten Germany and Austria-Hungary. Now, all these telegrams would actually go up until uh, August 1st, which was the first uh, 
you know, first official day of the, the Great War. By July 30th, events were leading towards war. Tsar Nicholas was being advised that Russia needed to mobilize due to the fact it was still in a rearmament stage, as I stated earlier, and needed every second it could get before the Germans. The Tsar met with Zazenov at 3 p.m. They spoke for over an hour. The Tsar, who was growing very nervous about the turn of events, finally snapped. Quote, the decision is mine and mine alone. Unquote. Zazenov urged the Tsar that under the current conditions, it was wise for Russia to wage war with Germany as a means of saving his own life and preserving his throne. Aware of the fact that Russia was mobilizing, the German ambassador in St. Petersburg, Frederick Portelis, met with Zazenov. The two men spoke about Germany restraining its ally and for Russia to stop, quote, the premature mobilization against Austria. Portelis had no idea at this point that Russia was fully mobilizing, not just against Austria, but Germany as well. There had been reports of Russian mobilization along the border with Germany in the days before that meeting, but nothing was truly confirmed. As much as Germany wanted diplomatic channels to remain open, it knew that the longer it waited to mobilize its forces, it was setting itself up for a catastrophe in regards to Russia. On the 30th, Portelis sent an ultimatum to Russia to stop its mobilization or else the Germans would mobilize. Zazenov told them, quote, it was impossible on technical grounds to stop war preparations. So right there, we get to the point where Russia's admitting that they can't stop this. Zazanov essentially just says, once mobilization is going, it cannot be stopped. What, what if they could have stopped it? Quite possibly Germany probably would have stopped. The only reason Germany was starting to mobilize was because of this. By the evening of the 30th, Chief of Staff Holdman von Moltke of the German military was no longer willing to wait any longer to issue a mobilization. So we already know the Russians are moving to mobilize. Made preparations, they went full mobilization. The Germans still haven't even mobilized yet. So this is where we're getting to my point of how is the Germans getting the full blame? Yes, they did issue their ally a blank check in which they gave him full support. Russia was given Serb support. So how's Germany going to be at fault for this? Well, that's for a later time when we find out why the Germans will actually have to take the fall. Von Moltke told Bethmann that Germany must mobilize regardless of what Russia decided to do. The two of them agreed that Germany should announce the mobilization on the 31st. So we're talking three days after the Russians had already started going. Now, pretty much after this point, we just get into the sections of why uh, you know, France gets pulled into it and Great Britain gets pulled into it. You know, I, I'd like to save that portion for another time in which we can discuss um, the Schieflin plan and how uh, Great Britain decided to back Belgium neutrality, how France was pulled into it, 
what the Germans were thinking at this point of you know why they decided to go after France with the mobilization in the West. But I kind of wanted to dominate the fact of tonight's discussion in regards to the blame itself. In the mainstream history has taught us anything is that the blank check by Germany, which allowed Austria to declare war in Serbia, is the focal point for why World War I starts. And as I pointed out, the Russian mobilization days before Germany and not being able to reverse it is the key component of why everything starts to get completely more out of control than it could have. It could have been a regional war between Austria and Serbia. I think many of the European countries probably would have expected it and probably wouldn't have thought anything of it. But because of the alliance system, which every country is at fault for that, and for the pure fact that Russia could not stop its mobilization, is why this war went the way it did. And why the events really spiraled out of control in those last days of July. See, being in Germany's position of having to understand, one must understand that Germany was surrounded. They were going to have a war on two fronts. One against a powerful Russia, and the other against France. And like I said, in a future episode, I'd like to talk about that. But I think tonight we get the, the gist of how it came to this just before moment of what kicked off. And I want to leave you with something also to really put things in perspective about what happened at the end. And I'm going to read this section of a great book that if anybody really wants to indulge themselves on what the July crisis was like almost on a day-to-day basis, somebody should pick up the book by Sean McMeekham. It's called July 1914. And I read this book a few years ago and changed my perception on it. And this is what it says here. On the 29th of July of 1914, the Tsar advised anonymously, it's a late year for me, by his advisors, they signed the order for general mobilization. General mobilization, as he knew, as Zazanoff knew, and several others of his cabinet knew, meant war. The Tsar knew clearly what he was going to do. But he was also moved by these telegrams that he was getting from his cousin, the Kaiser. And he kept changing his mind. He said, and I quote, I will not be responsible for a monstrous slaughter. Monstrous slaughter. I can't believe I butchered that. I'm sorry. Monstrous slaughter is the key line for this entire point at the end of July. The Kaiser, not the Kaiser, the Tsar kept going back and forth so much here at the end that Zazanov was getting so agitated by him that he actually told somebody, just smash the telephone so that the Tsar would not change his mind again. Tsar's own cabinet made sure that mobilization could not be reversed at the signature of the czar. Till next time, my name is Jeremy, and this is Not Your Normal History.